an anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Before I change my mind! I give you Super Train! Episode 448, Submission 1027. Hail to the Chief. Hail to the Chief aired on ABC from April 9th to May 21st of 1985 for seven episodes. And that's Nine less than your traditional crock block. We know what it is. I went through all the Hanna-Barbera series last week that had 16 episodes. We're not going to do it again. In the last episode of Hail to the Chief, everyone was talking about the end of the world. Julia talked to Premier Zolotov about how she talked to the crazy major who was still talking about launching the missiles that would blow up the world. Julia's advisors all talked about the fact that time was running out, and although they talked a lot, none of them could talk about a solution. Doug, the president's son, came home to talk to his father about a girl he did more than just talk to. Talk about a coincidence, the girl was General Stryker's daughter, who talked her father into believing that Luger was to blame. Oliver tried to talk Julia into forgiving him about some women he did more than just talk to. But Julia wasn't interested in talking. Since Julia needed to talk to somebody, she decided to talk to her father, who's a better listener now that he's dead. Oliver went to talk to his mistress, Darlene, but talking was never Darlene's strong point. When Oliver talked to her about ending their relationship, Darlene talked about ruining his life. So Oliver decided to talk to God. And while they were chatting, he talked himself into saving the world and headed for the missile silo. Confused? You won't be after this episode of Hail to the Chief. Gentlemen, if we go back to the mid-80s, specifically 1984, that was an election that made some history. We had our first female vice presidential candidate, first female on a major ticket who could have ascended to the presidency. Obviously, since then, well, currently we have a female vice president. But back then, little me would have been all of nine years old at that point. I remember the news of Geraldine Furrow being the running mate for Walter Mondale in 1984. And it was huge. And it was historic. It sort of put a light and drew attention to the uh, women's rights, uh, which was very prevalent in the 70s. And obviously, that ticket didn't work out that well because I think Reagan won every state except Mondale's home state of Minnesota, or maybe there was another state. I think maybe like a New Hampshire or a Vermont may have gone with Walter Mondale. It was 49 states for Reagan. Mondale won Minnesota and D.C. Oh, he got D.C. Okay, I thought he got one of the little Northeast states, but still... The only electoral votes he got were from his own home state and from D.C. Of course, it doesn't really help in a debate when you say, I'm going to raise your taxes. Didn't we learn that from the whammy? I will raise your taxes. (laughs) Well, you're not going to be president, you little bastard, if you keep on saying that type of stuff. But I like money. Okay, I get that. You're cute. You're adorable. But... You're not a good politician. So building off of that, I can assume, somebody said, hey, let's make a sitcom out of this with a female president, and hilarity will ensue. Well, there is hilarity, but obviously, as I said earlier, there's seven episodes of hilarity, so maybe hilarity didn't ensue for all that long. Now, Hail to the Chief itself 
really had a format very similar to Soap in that it was a comedy with open-ended storylines that parodied a soap opera. So you had that continuity in each episode. The one thing that probably would have made this better, not great necessarily, but better, would be if they had Rod Roddy doing the intros and outros like on Soap. He was a little busy at the time doing Pressure Luck. And this would have been, what, about six months, nine months before he got the Price is Right job because Johnny would have still been alive in April and May of 1985. I think that would be great. Confused? You won't be after the next episode of Hail to the Chief. Now, actually, there is quite a logical reason for that. The people who created Soap Paul Junderwit, Tony Thomas, and Susan Harris also created this show. And instead of Rod Roddy, they got a lady by the name of Rachel Donahue as your announcer. Now, she is a longtime radio personality in San Francisco and Los Angeles. She was the original entertainment reporter for CNN. She was a VJ for Cable Music Channel. Cable Music Channel, that might be something we need to cover one day. The Turner equivalent of MTV that lasted, I want to say, a month and a half. It did not last very long. It's either a month and a half or a year and a half, but still, it didn't last very long. So the president in this show, her name is Julia Mansfield. And the big thing about the show is how does... President Mansfield balance out her work life, running a country, running probably the biggest and most powerful country in the world at this time, especially with nuclear wars and other issues you had back in the 80s, but at the same time, raising her family and playing Julia Mansfield. Oh, this is great casting. Patty Duke. We can't say a bad word about Patty Duke. It's impossible. She's like America's sweetheart in 1985. Oh, there we go. That fills the blank from the last episode. Because during the Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour history segment, I said Nidra Voles was America's sweetheart in early 1984. And then in mid-1984, it was Mary Lou Retton because of the Olympics. And I said that lasted till 1985, where presumably Nidra Voles got it back again. No, no. Patty Duke Aston. She was going to be America's sweetheart in 1985 if this show worked. Now, hold on a second. No, it couldn't have been Nidra Vols in early 1985 because I just figured it out. 16 Candles came out like in late 84. So it would be Molly Ringwald that took the title of America's Sweetheart from Barry Lurette. So I know, Mike, you really want it to be Nidra Vols, but let's be honest. Nobody thinks she's America's sweetheart other than you. And we at least agree for like a month and a half in 1985, Patty Duke was America's sweetheart? Yes, we can. Thank you. I appreciate that. Playing her husband, General Oliver Mansfield, the first husband, if you will, not first lady, the first man, is Ted Bessel. Ted Bessel is more of a behind-the-scenes type of personality. He directed the Tracy Ellman show. But he was on 137 episodes of That Girl as Donald Hollinger. And he was also on 19 episodes of Gomer Pyle. And, oh my gosh, just looking at the name of this show and looking at the IMDb ratings for it, this might be something we need to cover if we can find it. He played Mike Reynolds, the lead character, a dentist, in a 1972 series called Me and the Chimp. I expected a reaction from somebody there, but whatever. So me and the chimp. Dennis Mike Reynolds is living a good life with his wife, Liz, and his two children. When Scott and Kitty find a chimp, he reluctantly agrees to keep it, but finds his life turned upside down when the eight buttons causes chaos on a regular basis. 3.6 stars on IMDb, and that's out of 10, not out of four stars. Oh, but I'm looking at the cast. I found why we need to find this. Not Ted Bessel, not Buttons the Monkey. Anita Gillette plays his wife. We need to find this. 
And there's a ton of guest stars, name guest stars. Oh, you know, if I didn't already commit my money in the bank and this was out there, I would make this my money in the bank. Hey, you know what? Next year, I'm going to make a declaration. If we can find me and the chimp for my 50th birthday, I will make me and the chimp my money in the bank in 2025. I know we can't officially declare that, but I'm just saying right now, if this can be found, happy 50th birthday to me. I know you guys are just so excited, I, so giddy I for can't it. wait. <laughs> now you're like, damn it, they're better be me and the chimp on Tubi since they carry every darn thing. Where's the lie? Did not say there's a lie. They carry every. I just saw somewhere they have like 80,000 movies and TV shows or titles. They do literally have like everything, it seems. I don't know if it was shows or episodes or whatnot, but the number was pretty staggering. Playing the daughter Lucy Mansfield is Quinn Cummings. She played Annie Cooper and Marcy Wills on 36 episodes of Family back in the late 70s and early 80s. And really, her career ended in 1992 with a single episode of Evening Shade. Not true. Her career on television ended in 1992, but she's a frequent guest on Mark Marin's WTF podcast. I ah, see. I don't listen to that. And I should add this for Greg. Her second to last credit on IMDb is in one episode of Blossom. Whoa, whoa. Thank you. Playing the son Doug Mansfield is Ricky Paul Golden. Ricky Paul Golden had a little bit of a career in the 2000s as Gus Itoro and Nicholas Agostino Spaulding on Guiding Light. 274 episodes. And he was on 467 episodes of All My Children and 137 episodes of Another World. So he's basically that guy in that soap opera. And relative to you, Greg, he was in one episode of Jessica Jones. Which season? I don't know which season it is, but it's Carlo Eastman. It's season one, episode four. Okay. Well, just to let everyone know, after Echo got released earlier this month, in January, the Marvel Netflix shows, which have always been on Disney Plus under the Defender saga, have now since been added to the official MCU canon. It was always like a question of, well, it's kind of like on the fence of if it's canon or not. But nope, Disney Plus finally confirmed, I think last week, at the time of recording this, that yes, all the Marvel Netflix shows are now kinned to the MCU. I also want to add one more credit just because somehow in close to 450 episodes, we have never mentioned this. Ricky Paul Golden was in the movie Lombada. Do you guys remember Lombada Mania? I know you guys are young, but Lombada, the dance of love, 1990. You can't talk about that. It's the forbidden dance. Well, I think I just did for the first time in 448 episodes. Why did they make a movie called Lombada? Probably sort of to get the dirty dancing thing. Because I mean, that's basically what it was. It was like the forbidden dance, the dance of love. And they made a movie about it. It was supposed to be this big thing, but it was like a huge bust at the movie theaters. And again, IMDb. A 3.4 rating out of 10 stars. I'm looking at the cast here. You got J.D. Peck, Melora Hardin, Ricky Paul Golden, Basil Hoffman. You've got Dennis Berkeley. We've Dennis talked about Berk Dennis Berkeley. I was Berkeley. just about to say Dennis Berkeley, a future Hall of Famer, and Adolfo Shabadu. And Keen Curtis, too. Look, I'm not going to lie. You had me at Melora Hardin. I think we had you at Forbidden Dance. Look, I want to see Jan Livingston do the Lombada, damn it. 
First time in recorded history somebody's uttered that. You see, I was doing that, telling you about Lombada, Greg, because you would have been like five, six years old at that point. You wouldn't have known about Lombada mania. Even Chico, he would have been like 10. Maybe he got it a little bit, but me, I was in that sweet spot, 14, 15 years old, horny-ass teenager. Give me the dance of love. I'm not going to say I didn't know about it, but I didn't not know about it. Like I said, Chico had a pulse back in 1990, and he was of the age where he would know a little bit about it. I'm just trying to educate those folks 40 and under who don't realize Lombada Mania back in 1990 was like so huge. And then this movie comes out and but enough about the Forbidden Dance. Let's talk about some more people in this series. Playing Ivan Zolotov. Again, another name that I don't think we've talked about all that often, which is a bit of a shame. Dick Sean. Very well-known comedian. Yeah, he was in uh, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World and the producers from 1967. And really, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, one of the great movies back in the 60s. Highly recommended. He was in Captain EO. That must have been like right before he died because Captain EO would have been 87, I think. 86? But still, like right before he died, he died in April of 87. And actually, the one thing I know that he was on, I don't know if it was posthumously or not, he was on a week of wordplay. Oh, the first week. So that would have been December of 86. And I think uh, early 87, because it was only four episodes. So I'm going to assume that New Year's Day was in there. Because I remember wordplay debuted late December of 86. So that would have been like, Four months before he passed away. Playing Reverend Billy Joe Bickerstaff. Man, this guy might be making a Hall of Fame case. Richard Paul. We talked about him in Carter Country. We talked about him in One in a Million. We even talked about him in the uh, Jerry Falwell movie. Oh, I forget what the name of that movie is. People versus Larry Flint. Yeah, that one. It's such a good movie. No, it really is a good movie, but it's such a good movie, I forgot the title of it. Yes, and that was like a year, maybe two years at most before he died. But, oh, Richard Paul playing Jerry Falwell in The People versus Larry Flint. An amazing movie. He owned that role. He really did. He, he did a superb job, had the look, had the mannerisms all down straight. Now, admittedly, when you were on Carter Country and you sort of had that Southern drawl and whatnot, that's sort of easy to morph from Carter Country to Jerry Falwell, the preacher man. So it, it's not a big stretch, but again, he did it so beautifully and seamlessly. Playing Secretary of State Helmut Luger is Herschel Bernardi. There's another name that we really haven't talked about, even though he's a name. He was Lieutenant Jacoby on Peter Gunn. Well, everybody remembers that theme song. I mean, that was like a staple when I was in high school. That was like the first thing we like learned to play in high school band was Peter Gunn. Nobody knew what the heck Peter Gunn was. Nobody really knew who Henry Mancini was because he obviously uh, uh, created that theme. But the thing is, that's like the easiest theme to do. Especially if, again, you're like a 14, 15-year-old high schooler. And also, Herschel Bernardi played the lead role, Arnie Nouveau, in the series Arnie from 1970 to 1972. And really, that sort of answers a question uh, in my mind of who is Herschel Bernardi because I've seen some reruns of Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In in the past. And Herschel Bernardi's on it, and I'm like, who's Herschel Bernardi? I know who this is, I know who this is, I know who this is. And Herschel Bernardi always sort of escaped me. I've never really seen Peter Gunn, but okay, it makes sense. 
he's on this show, Arnie, and he happens to be on Rowan Martin's laughing around 70, 71, 72. So now it all makes sense. Now I can put a, a, a face to a, a role. Playing Randy, don't have a last name, unfortunately, but playing Randy is Joel Brooks. I think all of us would know him better as number one, pretty good pyramid player back in the day, but also number two, he was on My Sister Sam. Somewhere recently, I saw a picture of him within the last year, like a recent picture. I don't remember if it's social media or where have you, but he's still uh, hanging in there. But yeah, like I said, the place I remember him is Pyramid, and I definitely remember him on My Sister Sam. Yeah, he is currently one of the featured stars in Freeform's Good Trouble, which is wrapping up its run this year. Never heard of that. Okay. He was also in My Dad Says. Future installments, bleep my dad says. I think Greg has stuff to say about that. Playing Senator Sam Cotton. I don't know, just that name sort of invokes an image of certain senators you would have had in 1985. I'm thinking your Jesse Helmses. I'm thinking your Strom Thurmonds. Sam Cotton just seems like a name that would fit with those folks, for better or for worse. Played by Murray Hamilton. Murray Hamilton, he did a little bit of everything. He was, oh, he was Mr. Robinson in The Graduate. Not Mrs. Robinson, Mr. Robinson. Oh, so that explains why Ann Bancroft wanted to get Dustin Hoffman. With all due respect to Murray Hamilton. Boy, you have a pick between Murray Hamilton and a young Dustin Hoffman. Yes, that's why she's trying to seduce you. Talking to Dustin Hoffman. She's not trying to seduce Murray Hamilton. Hold on. You think Aunt Bancroft got like a bunch of free tickets to Qantas Airlines later on in her life? Because Dustin Hoffman's character in Rain Man wants to go on Qantas. So those are the major stars of the show in terms of appearing on, let's say, a majority of the episodes. Now, there are only seven episodes, so we don't have a lot to go over in terms of plots and whatnot. Chico, I believe you have an episode guide, a complete episode guide. I've got a number of episodes, but I don't have a complete episode guide. So I'll hand the reins over to you. Thank you, Mike. Episode one, President Julia Mansfield is told that Brower, an Air Force general gone crazy, has taken control of a launch command center and will launch a preemptive nuclear strike against the USSR unless his demands are met. Julie calls Soviet Premier Zolotov to warn him and is told that the Soviet Union will have no choice but to retaliate if she can't stop Brower. Later, Julia's husband, Oliver, confesses all of his past affairs to her and she walks out on him. A couple of recurring characters are introduced on this episode, playing LaRue Hawks, Glenn Terman, you remember him from A Different World, playing the wife of Zolotov, Madame Zolotov, Susan Kellerman, who is best known for her roles in Last Holiday and Death Becomes Her, the younger brother of Lucy Mansfield, Willie Mansfield, played by Taliesin Jaffe, who was a that voice from that thing as of late. He was also on Scrubs. Episode 2. General Stryker tells head of security Helmut Luger that Stryker's daughter is pregnant and that Luger is responsible, unaware that Julia's son, Doug, is really the father. What? Corrupt televangelist Reverend Billy Joe Bickerstaff plots to have Julia impeached. Oliver's mistress, Darlene, threatens to ruin him when he tries to end the affair in an attempt to make up for all of his past mistakes. And Oliver promises God that he will save the world by stopping Brower. One more thing I want to add regarding this episode is a minister preaches that Satan has put a woman in the White House. Yeah, kind of a hot-button topic in 1985. Playing the role of Darlene Lubin, the other woman, 
Alexa Hamilton nowadays can be seen on two episodes of NCIS, but was in the made-for-TV adaptation of The Poseidon Adventure from 2005. Back when it wasn't a rogue wave, but terrorism. Episode 3. Oliver confronts Brower and is shot in the process. Later, Julia tells a comatose Oliver that all is forgiven. Meanwhile, Ivan Zolotov, head of the KGB and the Premier's twin brother, arrives at the Russian embassy and instructs his agent Darlene to stay by Oliver's side so she can continue to get information. We're already starting to see how this is like soap. We have a face to the name of Major Brower. Playing Major Brower, Terry Kaiser. I know that wasn't the reaction you were expecting. I think Greg is just in shock. And also, have we officially put him in the Hall of Fame yet? Yes, we did. I put him in the last year. So let's put some respect to that name. It was a thing on TV. Hall of Famer, Terry Kaiser. Hold on. I got a great idea. What if, let's just say, he died and they all pretend like he's not dead, the major. By the way, in case we haven't mentioned it, playing General Stryker, John Vernon, who is Dr. Stone in Airplane 2, the sequel. I do want to add more stuff about this episode because I've got a bit more information on my capsule. Oliver cons his way into the missile silo in an attempt to thwart the madman who has threatened to detonate a nuclear device. Oh, and also, one thing I do want to add, when Chico is giving the episode names, you've heard him say episode one, episode two, episode three, so on and so forth. We don't have actual episode names to this. It's literally called, in the episode guides, episode one, episode two, episode three, episode four. So we're not missing that information. That's literally what's given to us. And with that out of the way, Chico will take us to the midway point, episode four. Episode four. That's why I said episode four. That's what I said. Episode four. Episode four. Oliver episode four? Wait, episode four? Episode four. Episode four. Oliver Don't say episode four, then say episode four. We know it's episode four. It's episode four. What's it about? Oliver recovers, believing that heaven has given him a second chance. His daughter Lucy is sleeping with Raul the butler, but Raul says that he can't commit to a serious relationship until his people in Contrapointa, South America, are free. Darlene visits Oliver in the hospital. Stryker tells Luger to marry his daughter Muffin under threat of death. And the Reverend Billy Joe finds two wealthy oil barons, Clovis and Lamar, who are willing to help him with his plan. I wonder about Contrapointa, South America. Do they have three ones there, sort of like in the final season of Soap? One, 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 two, one, three, and they're played by Joe Mantegna and Lori Faso and uh, Luis Avalos? We can only hope, but I'm just saying. Not outside the realm of possibility. Playing the two oil barons, Texan number one, Tony Frank, not much known in the way of him, but playing Texan number two, a known commodity, Noble Willingham from Walker, Texas Ranger. Wait, Greg, don't say it. Walker told me I need. Say it. Hey. Get it. I said, don't say it. I found the role for Tony Frank, though. Played Terry's dad on UHF. And then we have, as Lamar Montgomery, Pat Hingle. Pat Hingle, best known as Commissioner Gordon in the 1990s era Batman movies. And Pat Hingle's also one of my all-time favorite movies. Brewster's Millions. Greg does like his Brewster's Millions. Have you ever seen Brewster's Millions, Mike? Bits and pieces. Oh, you have to watch the whole movie. It's great. MLB Network probably airs it like once or twice a year during. Oh, oh, I've seen it on on MLB Network. They definitely show it 
more often than actually that once or twice a year you mentioned. Uh, obviously, this time of the year, since we haven't hit spring training yet, they got to fill the schedule somehow. Lamar Montgomery, he's actually one of the oil barons. Another one, Clovis Montgomery, played by Burton Gilliam, who played Lyle on Blazing Saddles and a Colt gun salesman in Back to the Future Part 3. Oh, he's the one who's trying to sell Morty that Colt Peacemaker. The very same. Episode 5. Oliver, who is now home from the hospital, still can't make love to Julia because he feels guilty about cheating on her again. Clovis and Lamar find some dirt on the president's personal accountant, Irving Metzman, played by George Weiner. Yes, that George Weiner. And force him to help them plot against Julia. Oliver breaks it off with Darlene, but not before having one last time together, unaware that the KGB is secretly filming the whole thing. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Hey, perfect! That's a great place to put the Patty Duke uh-oh. You can put, yes, yes. Perfect! Okay, so, couple of known names in this episode. Playing Sylvia, the delightful Rosemary. And playing Steve is Lonnie Price, who would be two years removed from playing that one role in the best Muppets movie ever, The Muppets Take Manhattan. Your mileage may vary, though, I'm just saying. The best Muppets movie ever is Muppet Christmas Carol. Let's be honest. Okay, you're all entitled to your wrong opinion, but that's just me. Look, do any of the other Muppet movies have Michael Caine in it? No. And playing a guy named Ahmed is Christopher Marr, who played the perpetually horned-up Armand in the only 80s movie that ever counts, 1987's Mannequin. Do you want me to get my Mannequin Blu-ray off my shelf No, 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 no. I've seen it plenty of times, thank you. No, no, we've seen enough cases from both of us this week when you showed your PS4 version of Atari 50 and I showed my Switch version of Atari 50. So we've got enough cases this week. Episode 6. Clovis and Lamar give Metzman some money to secretly put into government contracts in the name of Julia's family as personal investments to make it appear that she gave her family inside information. They then tell the Reverend Billy Joe to attack Julia on his talk show. Ivan Zolotov confronts Oliver, letting him know that if he doesn't do what Ivan says, the world will see the film of him and a Russian agent. By the way, Raul the Butler, played by Chick Venera, best known for three episodes of Vegas. Vegas. That sounds like an ice cream flavor. Chick what was that Chick Venera? That sounds like a Dollar General version of Chick Billet, if you ask me. And the final episode. Raul leaves for South America and Lucy follows after him. Luger has dinner with Stryker's family and after seeing how crazy they are, decides to marry Muffin if for no other reason than to get her out of the house. Ivan gives Oliver a list of demands. Later, Ivan admits to a colleague that if Oliver doesn't come through for them, he has a better plan. A plan to put a Soviet agent in the White House, at which point he introduces his newest secret agent, the Reverend Billy Joe. Dun, dun, dun. Playing Muffin Striker, Jonna Lee, who was in eight episodes of future entry Otherworld. She is a that woman from that thing. I'm going to throw one more name out there. This is a very minor role. Not even a name attached to this person. Just called Sports Writer Number One is played by Ange Labou. I'm going to make a huge assumption here because of the last name. This series was directed by a J.D. Labou, 
whose name you may remember from Soap. Gonna guess that Ange Labou is J.D. Labou's son. And that's the series. Now, we could just say what went wrong. Unfortunately, there's no episodes out there, so we can't really break it down and say, oh, this definitely went wrong. So I think the easiest thing to do is go to the schedule. What did it go up against? It aired on Tuesday nights at 9.30 p.m. The competition on CBS was a mixed bag, to say the least, because from what I saw, CBS basically slotted miniseries and TV movies and specials that night. They didn't really have any consistent TV show, at least in spring of 1985. But on NBC, and I know Greg has feelings about this, Hail to the Chief went up against the second half hour of Riptide. Oh, yeah. You're not going to beat Tom Bray. Or Joe Penny. I know we love our Tom Bray around here, but are we going to forget about Joe Penny? Well, let's be honest. Joe Petty was responsible for keeping the fat man away from that teenage. And Fat Man 66, exactly. That's right. He had to keep Fat Man 66. Which is immediately before It's Always Showtime at the Apollo. Oh. Hold on. Hold on. We're forgetting about Perry King and the robot, too. We got to give love to the robot. You're right about that. And actually, taking a look at the schedule, yes, from 9 to 11, there's generally a TV movie or a movie in general. But 8 to 9, at least when the show was in reruns in June of 85, you had The Jeffersons' final season at 8 p.m. And then at 8.30, again, I believe this is the final season. This definitely has to be the final season, I think. Alice. So you had two shows that are definitely on their way out at this point in the Jeffersons and Alice. And then you had some sort of TV movie. I saw some specials. I saw one week where they had a miniseries, part three. I forget which miniseries it is. The name's irrelevant. But the point is, that wasn't really necessarily a stacked lineup that night for CBS. It did have a good lead-in, though. Taking a look at the schedule... This is potentially pretty good for ABC in 1984-85, but we know how some of this turned out. Breeze a crowd at 8 p.m. Meh. It's still, you know, sort of by extension, Three's Company, but we talked about that. You had, oh my gosh, I remember this, and this obviously was sort of a copy of another big show at that point. Foul-ups, bleeps, and blunders hosted by Don Rickles, sort of trying to copy off of the TV bloopers and practical jokes aspect. And then you had Who's the Boss at 9? Angela! Then you had Hail to the Chief, and then you had Previous Entry, Magruder, and Loud. So I think you had potential there. Three's a crowd, obviously, didn't work out that well. Foul-ups, bleeps, and blunders, it was gone after summer of 85, so it tried. Hail to the Chief, obviously, gone. Magruder and Loud didn't last that long. It seems like the only thing that survived was Who's the Boss? Hold on. Do you want me to give my impression of Tony Danza on Who's the Boss? Sure. Angel. Chico, do you want to join in to give your best Tony Danza impression of Who's the Boss? Angela? Angela. That's a good one. Chico did a good one there. And of course, as we all know, who's the boss? Mona. Right. Of course it was Mona. This isn't for debate. It's definitely Mona. And also, let's remember the time that Family Guy, Peter Griffin, did the float, the parade float, of when Tony saw Mona in the shower. <laughs> Don't tell me you don't remember that. I remember that. I'm talking to Greg because of his reaction. That was a great moment. But hold on a second. We're eventually going to one day do a project where we're going to recap some of our favorite episodes from TV shows. And one of my favorite episodes is the Who's the Boss episode that I saw on YouTube. 
And let me just say, it is a pisser. And also, I think we should make reference. Guys, I don't want to make any of us feel old, but we're like a week away from Family Guy turning 25 years old. A quarter century of Family Guy. Oh, my gosh. But you know what this also Chico, it's 25 years since the Rocket Vic Foley wrestled on halftime in Super Bowl 33. Halftime heat. That's right. The greatest freaking Super Bowl counter programming of all time. Yeah, you might think in Living Color on Fox in Super Bowl 26 was the greatest halftime counter programming ever. No, USA Network beat that in 1999. Some final little notes about this episode. First and foremost, when this series was created, it came down to two names. Hail to the Chief, or the other name was Madam President. I don't think the name necessarily makes a big difference here. Either way, it sounds like the show was kind of dead. But also, Chico mentioned earlier about Paul Jungowit, Tony Thomas, and Susan Harris, who, who was the company behind Soap. But also, I mentioned earlier the director, J.D. Labou. He was the director on Soap. And you have a lot of names here that were related to Soap. I know we didn't talk about this guy on Soap. I forget where we talked about him. But the theme song was done by George Allison Tipton. It was another comedy from the 80s. I don't remember which one specifically. Condo? That's it. But also on top of that, he was a composer for basically every Junger Thomas Witt show. Empty Nest, Golden Palace, Golden Girls, It's a Living, Benson. He was like the composer for Junger Thomas Witt. So you had the names from Soap going to this show Looks like it's a recipe for success. Obviously, it's not. But that might be for the good. But maybe because of Hail to the Chief's lack of success, we get the Golden Girls' success. Possibly. It started in fall of 85. Not saying they couldn't do two shows, but I'm just throwing that out there. I was actually looking at the schedule for fall of 85. You know what inherited this show's slot? Little show from Neil Marlins called Growing Pains. No reaction from Alan. Okay. Now, hold on a second. Hold on a second. That's very overplaced, this show, guys. Alan, we haven't heard from you in a long while. How's everything going? Oh, everything's going good, buddy. What's going on in your 2024? Well, I'm from the. I, I'm just traveling from the future. So it's like I came by to see you guys. As you all know, I can't tell you anything about my own future. I didn't ask you for the future. I just said, how's your 2024 going? Oh, uh, you know, life in 2024 is amazing. You know, you got your own, you got some checkout counters now. That's something else. That's like science fiction Star Trek type. I know, Alan. Isn't self-checkout like so amazing? Oh, yeah, except when it doesn't work that well. Alan is really amazed by self-checkout? Yeah. Why? Because he travels from the past to the future, silly. And Ed's tortoise. But of all the technological advancements, self-checkout? Yes. I mean, nothing about AI, nothing about... Yeah, the, oh, the, oh, the AI, it all sucks. Oh, I know. They, Haven't you been listening to this podcast? We've been doing all the chat GPT segments for like, well, we haven't done a chat GPT segment in a while, but as we've all pointed out, AI is absolutely horrible. I mean, Alan, I got to show you this image. I mean, let's enhance.io of Hulk Hogan on Jeopardy as the host. Oh, let me see this. I really want to see it. What kind of is this? I know. I'm just biting my tongue. I'm not saying a word. To get it back to 
What happened? Yeah, what happened? This show did terrible. That's why I replaced it. Yeah, okay, so I think it all goes back to Soap. When Soap premiered in 1977, it was provocative. It slaughtered golden bulls. It spent four years going there. But, and I have a quote here from Susan Harris. I think the country has grown up some. In certain cities in 1977, soap couldn't be shown before 11.30 at night. Now it's being shown in syndication at 5.30 and 7.30 in the evening, and nobody cares. So things have changed. I think that's a very valid point. Social mores definitely changed in the late 70s and early 80s, especially when you get to those hot-button topics of homosexuality and and uh, interracial marriage and some of the other hot button issues that soap attacked. I really think that's a great point. That's a great quote. In 1977, soap was socially provoking, but by 1985, people who grew up on soap were socially exhausted. So yeah, for better or for worse, hail to the chief, its failure kind of sort of brought on the Golden Girls and the rest is history. Younger Thomas Witt went on to, oh my gosh, I want to say immortality, but let's say that. I mean, between Soap and the Golden Girls, really, they're two different types of work, but they're both equally amazing in the different types of work they are. In the middle of that, though, we had Hail to the Chief and seven episodes, that's not even a mooch span. And unfortunately, Hail to the Chief, it just ended up being a thing on TV. But again, one that, if it had a longer run, we may not get the Golden Girls. And if we don't get the Golden Girls, my gosh, I think we may have a different landscape in television. I don't think Betty White would be the legend that she is necessarily. But who knows? That's all speculation. Well, that's the state of TV democracy for you. That's going to be it for this episode. Please remember, you can always go to our website at itwasthethingontv.com and listen to all the previous episodes we got. We've got almost 600 different types of files there between main episodes and live shows and instant reactions and before the show, all that stuff. We're really close to 600 total items. And please remember, we're on social media everywhere, including Instagram, Threads, and Mastodon at It Was The Thing on TV. We're not at X slash Twitter anymore. I officially deactivated that today. So Yay! do not... You're more than welcome. Do not go to X Twitter. That's a cesspool. Please go to Instagram, Threads, Mastodon. You can find us at It Was The Thing on TV. And don't forget, at Facebook, we are at It Was The Thing on TV podcast. And please remember, if you want to follow us on Mastodon, you need to do a search for us at It Was The Thing on TV at tvwatch.party. Yes, because as we all know, searching for something on Mastodon is a little confusing. So It Was The Thing on TV at tvwatch.party. You're fine there. And of course, every Friday, if you're listening to this on Voice Media Pop, we got the On The Bus cuts of our two episodes for the week there right now. And hey, Mike. Did you get Peacock with the whole situation with the Browns last week in your area? I did not. But really, I saw the first episode of Ted. I need to see all the episodes of Ted. I'm probably going to get Peacock in the next couple of days. Okay, good. Because on the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, I'm doing a monthly podcast with Scott Cuspola where I'm doing a riff track style watch of WWE pay-per-views from the WWE Network section called Wrestle Tracks. And it's a fun look at some of the amazing wrestling pay-per-views and some of the pop culture going on at that time. So you can check that out on the Place Nation wrestling feed. And I guarantee you, Mike, hilarity is going to ensue. You're going to love it. Excellent. Be sure to check that out, everybody. But also, please do remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever you can find podcasts. Apple Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, Audible etc. Even if you just use one of those independent players like 
Podcast Addict, or Antenna Pod, you can easily find us. Not terribly difficult. And please don't forget, we're also on YouTube where you can like and subscribe to our channel. Please do not forget to hit that notification bell. Stay informed of all future uploads on the channel, including what's coming up on the podcast next week. Oh, oh next week, I think we may have definitely one epic episode. I don't know if the second one's going to be really epic, but I think we got one real good winner here for sure. So first thing we're going to talk about is yet another goofy game show from the 70s. And this one epitomized goofy, but it also epitomized another word. Cheap. And it's not cheap, cheap, cheap. No, that was in the 2010s. But this is, excuse the phrase, the original cheap show. But after that, you remember how we talked about Lombada earlier being the big thing in 1990 in terms of movies and the forbidden dance, the dance of love? Yes. Yeah. We're going to talk about another thing from 1990 that was supposed to be groundbreaking, supposed to be just amazing television. And unfortunately, it lasted a season. It had so much acclaim. It had such great names behind it. But in the end, it was a huge bust. So we're going to talk about a very cheap show, wink, wink, wink. And this thing, which was supposed to be absolutely humongous and amazing, but turned out to be a huge mess right here. At, it was a thing on TV. As always, thank you for listening. Stay safe. And we'll catch you with those episodes next week. Wow. You know what I would much rather watch than Ale to the Chief? What's that? What's that? Oh, we did that in unison. Good job, Chico. All right. YouTube videos of gameplay of Hail to the Chimp on Xbox 360. Which, as I told Greg, for the money, now admittedly, the game only costs like $10, $15, but for the money, one of the funniest games you could buy. Really underrated. Well, remember, it is an established fact on this podcast that Greg hates money. Well, no, it's not hating money. It's a great game. It's not a $50 or $60 game. It's like a $15, $10, $20 game. But it is absolutely hilarious for the price. It is well worth the money. So, Greg, your hate of money has been absolved in this episode. Yes. So we are clear this is not the movie from The Simpsons, is it? Or the episode of Super Train with Billy Barty, the ever little guy in the magician. Are we talking about Hail to the Chimp or Hail to the Chief? Hail, Hail to, to the, the Chimp. Chief. Oh, I thought you were talking about Hail to the Chief. I was talking about that episode of Super Train. Because as we all know, I love thinking about Super Train all the time. So we are sort of talking about Hail to the Chimp and Hail to the Chief. Yeah. Oh, darn. It's not available on the PS4. I would buy it immediately on the PS4. PS3 and Xbox 360 only. Well, the game is 16 years old at this point, so maybe my expectations were a little high. It's timeless, though. It's hilarious. Like I said, best game you'll buy for like 15, 20 bucks. Absolutely. Ding.